Entrepreneurship has become a global phenomenon. Uncover the stories of entrepreneurs and investors worldwide. From Sub-Saharan Africa to Silicon Valley and beyond. Here on the Global Startup Movement. Now, here's your host, Andrew Berkowitz. We are here in D.C. in the alley powered by Verizon. I'm here with Brian Park, who is a managing partner at Spark Labs, who is launching a new cyber and blockchain program here in D.C. Uh, Brian, thanks for having me here. Thank it's, you, Andrew. Uh, it's a beautiful space. My second time here, but first time really actually working out here and yeah. uh, seeing the space, so it's cool to be here. But I guess, can you start us off just a little bit about you and how you ended up with, with Spark Labs? Sure, sure. Well, first of all, thank you for having me on your program. Um, what you do for the ecosystem is awesome. So uh, appreciate that. Great job. Uh, so yeah, my name is Brian Park. Um, I am the managing partner of Spark Labs Cyber and Blockchain. Uh, obviously, we're focusing on da 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 cybersecurity and blockchain. I guess maybe to give you a little bit of context of how it all started. The Spark Labs Cyber Blockchain is a rebrand of an incubator locally known here as Fishbowl Labs. So back in 2012, Fishbowl Labs started from AOL, and uh, I wasn't part of the founding team for that, but um, but basically it all started from one of the highest ranking executives in AOL, Bud Rosenthal. He actually went to Palo Alto to see, like, you know, doing regular business, and he noticed that there was, like, a space at the AOL building in Palo Alto on the first floor, and he knows that, there was folks that didn't they they didn't look like they were AOL employees, and so it was like, let's who are these people? <laughs> and they were like, oh, this is the first floor labs incubator. He's like, what's that? It's like, well, we invite all these local entrepreneurs in the Palos area. During that time, you know, after two thousand eight was the whole decline there in Palo so it was a lot of dark buildings, and so they had a lot of space in that building and. They were like, okay, well, how could we sort of re-energize the this this area? And so they're like, okay, well, we can open the space to just open any startups, and that's exactly what they did. And Bud saw that and it's like, hey, man, back in Dulles, we have close to half a million square feet of unutilized space, so I'm sure we can find something back in Dulles. And so he went back here, started it, and basically it was like a conference room right right in the entrance of if you ever been to the AOL campus. There's this one building, you go in Steve Case, and you'll see like this nice like conference glass enclosed space. And so um, they're like, hey, well, what does this look like? It looks like a fishbowl. So let's call it the fishbowl. So that's the birth of AOL Fishbowl Labs. Yeah. And that that then, sounds like the story of like the birth of every startup ecosystem. We had an underutilized space. Right. We figured we should bring the community together th- right. there and it works out. Right. Exactly. Exactly. Uh, a, lo- a lot of broke founders <laughs> looking for uh, how to squeeze the penny. Yeah. And so that's exactly what they did. They opened up the space free. You can All you have to do is apply. And so the first batch, they had around six or seven companies. I didn't join until 2015 when I was the CEO of Startup Grind, which is one of the largest independent communities in the world. So I was working out of that space. All the found, original founders of that incubator kind of like they kind of left. <laughs> They're doing the regular jobs. They're like, oh, you know, this is too much work. And so I was in the space and I was pretty much acting like the managing director there. So like, you know, the only, these companies like, hey, do you know anybody from here and there and there? And I'll just, you know, naturally just connect them. And so eventually we had 
close to 15 more companies that went the program when I was there. And so of the 33 companies that we had, we had four of them that would say were very successful. So obviously we had M Help Desk, which got sold to Home Advisor. We had Urgently, those guys raised close to $30 million. Speak, they got sold to um, Jive. And then finally, the whole reason why we decided to create this accelerator was Threat Quotient. And when Threat Quotient went through our program, those guys came in with you know flip-flops and t-shirt. We basically helped incubate them, and now there are 70, they, they've raised close to $70 million. They're one of the unicorns in this area. So we were thinking, how can we create the success but three to four times faster? And so it was very clear at that moment where, well, we need to create a program that can find another threat quotient type company. And so that's when we went down this, this route. And so basically uh, Bernard Moon, who's the general partner of Spark Labs, was like, hey, you know, maybe we should create a, an eighth accelerator, rebrand the fishbowl to Spark Labs and do it cybersecurity. That was the original intention was to do it cybersecurity. And I was like, okay, well, I think there's got to be a little bit more because, you know, Spark Labs is primarily a brand that's predominantly in Asia, in the in that area. And then those guys have been very active in the blockchain space. And so I was like, well, we need to leverage what you guys have in your network and why you guys are number one in that area for certain particular verticals. And so I was like we got to figure out how we can bring this blockchain into cyber. So I did a little bit of digging about like this whole, these two verticals and there could have been a better match for cyber and blockchain. So hopefully your viewers or your listeners are know about the history of, of blockchain, but it came from Bitcoin, right? Bitcoin is the most mature, right? It's all open, right? It's open source. It's decentralized, right? Anybody in the world, can download the piece of code, execute it on their machine, and now they're an active participant in the ecosystem, right? So the point was is that if you ever see the genesis of Bitcoin, it actually, the genesis of it came from the cypherpunk movement. So if you don't understand what the cypherpunk movement, those are all cryptologists, <laughs> right? They're all, they're all security guys. Yeah. And if you ever see like even the top, even now, if you ever look at the contributor in the, uh, in, in the open source, community, you'll see like the top 15 of those contributors, most of them are like neck deep into security, right? So it made sense. I was like, wow. So the Bitcoin came from cryptologists. I was like, well, where can I find the best cryptologists in the world? So I looked around and there's three places. So number three is Tel Aviv for obvious reasons, because <laughs> there's a strong cybersecurity hub there. And then number two is like, it was weird. It's in the Belgium area. So that's where the, the theories of cryptology and things like that kind of came from there. And all these winners and they were mathematicians, right? Because ultimately it's math. And then finally, the highest per capita of cryptologists in the world is actually here in Washington, D.C. And that's for obvious reasons, right? For the agency we can't name, three-letter agency north of, north of D.C., basically that agency, the NSA, is... The unclassified number of the NSA is around thirty to 40,000, but people don't realize the retired community or the former community is actually six, seven, eight times larger. And so we're like, wow, we should tap into that community. And indeed we did. And so if you ever have a conversation with a cryptologist, 
with a blockchain guru, it's almost as if they were, they're like two sides of the same coin. Yeah. Right. If you ever see them like talk, it's almost like, wow, <laughs> it's amazing how these guys know and, each and so, other. And so your goal is just to get these, these two folks or these two um, groups, uh, yeah. these two groups in the yeah. same room. And right. Right. Magic will happen. Right. Exactly. Because if you ever see like what's one of the largest threats to open source blockchain, it's, you know, they have these things called hard forks, soft forks. You can't go without a day of hearing that a major platform is going through a hard fork. And so that's that's the whole point. The whole blockchain movement is really another um, euphemism of the word decentralization. It's just basically, if you look at what Bitcoin is, it's literally a movement where there was no government, no banks, none of the oligopolies, none of the powers to be, any of those guys had their hands in it. It was completely generated by some kid who thought it was cool. Right. I mean, obviously it was a white paper, right? Yeah. Um, but, but obviously the white paper just says, here, here's a guideline. You guys start coding this. So then obviously you got these like open repositories, people contributing to the code base. And literally it's like, you know, a bunch of coders thought it's like, okay, I want to start coding this. And then another coder, thousands of coders across the world are like, that's cool. Download it, execute it. And then now they're part of an ecosystem. So there was no bank. There was nothing. There was no, you know what I mean? There's no like government that had their hands in it it's, yeah. and it's completely changed the paradigm so the question would be is there other types of bitcoin black swan events like that that will happen in the future going forward and so that's for us we're like absolutely we'd like to incubate and accelerate those companies that makes sense and it seems like this whole trend of decentralization and these platforms are being created at the, the same exact time when it seems like at, at a macro level we're kind of losing our trust and a lot of the centralized institutions that mm -hmm. You know, we, we just kind of took for granted as, as trustworthy over the past decades. I mean, you saw this, and this is here in Washington, D.C. When Congress invited Mark Zuckerberg, I actually had a very con similar conversation with Walt Mossberg. He's one of the, he, he was the uh, the, pers the personal technology columnist in Washington, uh, the Wall Street Journal. And so he's based here in D.C. I had him actually as a guest uh, at my, one of my startup grant events. And one of the things he had said was the original intention of the Internet if you get the founding fathers of the internet, you ask them, like, look at the internet, the state of the internet today, was that your intention? He said, without a doubt, 100%, they will say that was not our, that was not our vision, right? He was saying the oligopolies are so strong that it's killing innovation. It's basically stifling any sort of startups that want to compete against them, right? They just either, they, they either create a competing product or they'll just buy them out, right? So... At the current state of the internet, it's it's really bad because of the centralization. So when you saw Mark Zuckerberg when he came to D.C. testifying on the Hill, the public was kind of shocked. It's like these guys are supposed to be protecting us, and they're ask, they're asking stupid questions like, "You're like MySpace, right? <laughs> you know, like how yeah. do you how do you pay for advertisements?" And it's like people are just their jaws drop because they're like, "How are these policymakers, these lawmakers, supposed to regulate them if they have no clue about them?" So now with this whole Movement after that, after that happened, like you saw the whole delete Facebook movement. And now with GDPR coming in into play, really it's the issue of who really owns our data. And obviously it, it, in Europe, they've kind of, you know, those guys have always been privacy centric. And so they've, they've already ruled that data is owned by the customers, right? It's owned by the users. And the question would be going forward, what is it, what, what would a world look like a centralization, centralized world, internet world would look like? How would that be? 
dismantled through regulations to sort of all the uh, regulatory frameworks that we have right now. And we think that this is a great play for a decentralized web, right? So the web 3.0, can you see a world, a possible world where because of regulations, because of the, the whole GDPR movement and because of data being owned by users, can you see where, hey, get this data that you have and and we need to have a very streamlined approach of what we can do with this, right? So GDPR can say what it could look like is Facebook, you have to show your users three buttons. <laughs> you know, first button is show me everything you have and I want to see everything. Great, I see it. Okay, so now what do you want to do with that? You can either keep it there and just be happy with that or you can delete it completely. Or, and number three is where I, I feel like where our play of blockchain really takes place, decentralized web, transfer it. <laughs> transfer it to a decentralized Facebook. And oh, by the way, once you do that, we'll actually put a price on your profile. Because why? That money was originally yours, not Mark Zuckerberg's, not Jeff Bezos, not the richest people that you I mean, right now, Silicon Valley is going through this great, you know, roaring economy there. Because why? Because they're making money off your data. And the question is, is that can we take that back as users? And so we think that that third button where they click it and say, okay, now you are in a decentralized Facebook. By the way, your your profile is worth $5,000, right? Like, yeah. I definitely know my mom will click on that every single time, <laughs> right? She would not want to leave money on the table because right. that's her money, right? Yeah. So this is kind of like how we see data because really data is like the, the, the new oil. Yeah, and people have been saying that for a while, but I think this whole Cambridge Analytica scandal started the process of changing the perception. And like for me personally, I started, it, w it was after that where I started to think differently about some of these uh, Silicon Valley unicorns and their actual business model. And S Square is the perfect example. Most people think Square is a payment company. What Square is, they take all the data that all these businesses mm -hmm. and they can offer loans now against that all that data that they're collecting. Right. Uh, another one is 23andMe, right? Yep. Everyone thought they were just doing some cute little thing when... Mm -hmm. In actuality, you're literally giving them your DNA. And you're right. giving them the most valuable data that you have. Right. That's a genius company, by the way. Yeah. That's genius, yeah. the way they did that. And what's scary is that, like, the government can subpoena them and say, like, okay, well, Andrew, who's he related to? And, you know, can we find things that he has um, affinity to, right? And we'll find you guilty before you're... It's like you're Black Mirror. It's like Black Mirror, yeah. Yeah. Right. <laughs> yeah. So all, that, all that crap needs to be decentralized, you know? Right. I mean, well, so one thing... One thing I keep going back and forth on because I understand the perspective of wanting to break up the the thing. Problem that I see is now we live in this globalized world where if the U.S. breaks up its tech assets, China is not going to break up their tech assets. Yeah. They're just going to keep growing bigger and bigger. Right. And so you have WeChat, you have Tencent, you have Alibaba. If you look at the top 10 tech companies in the world by market capitalization, they're up there. Yeah. They're up there, right? So. In my mind, if we do actually do something to break up and, and make Google and Facebook and Amazon smaller, well, I think that's a really, really bad idea. Because what that opens up is now all the Chinese tech assets yeah. are all large enough to acquire majority stakes in our companies. Right. Like, imagine if China owned yeah. all the data that we give Facebook. Right, right. So, so I see your point there. I would go on a limb to say China will probably be the first, the first digital country to go decentralize it. They have, I mean, because Spark Labs, I mean, this is, this is our, that's our, that's our, that's our realm, right? Right, right. And the reason why is because 
the folks there are going to realize like, wow, the Chinese government has so much power. And if you think about it, that is the, that is the stereotypical oligopolic centralized government that's trying to control everybody. Right. And their citizens are, you know, they're smart enough to know like, wow, if we put our data in the hands of the Chinese government, what are the other options? Right. And so again, a whole decentralized web, have you ever been to like, um, used, um, BitTorrent or the Onion sites, uh, basically, we don't call it the dark web. It's the yeah. decentralized. The point is, is that it's a truly decentralized web. So if you go there and you're always thinking, hey, can I find a truly decentralized, the government can't shut down YouTube. It's there. He's just, I'm serious. Yeah. Just go no, there. I know, I, there is a YouTube version. DTube, DTube, right? Yeah, yeah. No, there's mean? a whole bunch of them. But well, there's, yeah. there's literally, so what I'm saying is like, 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 you know, these digital citizens, they're smart enough to know, like, you know, if my data is in the hands of an organization or government or, you know, whatever, government body, where they can literally just know everything and anything about me, and there's nothing I can do, right? You don't think that they want to put that, if they had the option to put that onto a system that, that's out of the purview of the government or any any centralized government. And, th- and that's that's Bitcoin. So I'm on, on the school of thought that China is probably going to be the first country that's going to decentralize. Yeah, that's interesting. I mean, they definitely have the talent. I was when when you said the top three cities for cryptographers, I, I was expecting you to say one of the, one of the Chinese cities. I was actually well, no, so China China is AI. So so that okay. that's the other that's the other angle that, that that I want to talk to talk to you about. So really, blockchain, distributed web 3.0, and AI they're all interrelated. It's under this whole veil of what we call automation. That's what really what we're talking about, right? So if you ever look at, are you are you a big Andrew Yang fan? So I I, I met him a couple of times. There's things that I agree with him and things I don't, but okay. um, but yeah, I mean, whole point of the whole automated world, I mean, that's going to happen. So if if you fast forward, if I say, I fast forward a thousand years from now, you're gonna no, I'm just saying. Like, no, I know. I, I just got it because there's people that says no, it's not going to happen. It's not going to be like this automated what they call decentralized automated organizational automated like you know world it's going to happen right because because of ai it's the the automation part of this so if you think about it can there be a automated facebook an automated like completely decentralized automated facebook a completely decentralized automated google google maps amazon and people are like no it's like ever so if I fast forward a thousand years, you don't think that's ever going to exist? And then, then when you when you say that, they're like, "No, I can see that existing, right?" Yeah. So that's exactly. so the point is, is that we got to make that we have to make we have to establish that premise that will it exist. And ninety nine percent of the people of all the experts they'll they're going to say yes. I mean, Elon Musk has been talking about this for years. So now we've already established that premise. Now let's go put that in rewind. <laughs> Where and when and how that progression is going to happen. So the point is with blockchain, it's it's a different form of automation. Yeah, you got these smart contracts and, you know, like these uh, execution of tasks that doesn't involve the human. Because ultimately what we're trying to do is we're trying to digitize a human, human thinking. We're trying to automate that. We're trying to replace a human being versus a person that behind the desk who's going to make that those calls. Can that be completely automated? Yes. And we have to start with these micro tasks. So again, you got... Let's go use Amazon, for example. Amazon, for sure, is going to be become an autonomous, autonomous entity. Right now, Jeff Bezos is the richest person in the world. Is he going to remain that? I don't know. That's sort of 
to be determined. But Amazon's going to be disrupted because you're going to have these automated sort of entities. So, a, you know, a completely decentralized autonomous organization, Amazon, where if I'm a manufacturer, I'm, a, I'm going to put my products into a supply chain where I can get the most for my money. Right now, because there's so, so much inter intermediation, that, you know, like if, if I'm like a person that's selling this, like this widget, and I put it into one system, it's like that system says, okay, don't, the highest bid for this for, per unit is going to be $10. And then that's all I'm looking at, right? Okay, $10, $10. Can anybody do it like 11, 12, no takers, 13, no takers? Okay, yeah. we'll go back to 10. Can you imagine on a completely decentralized system? Where now I'm just a manufacturer. All I care about is my price. Hmm, ten dollars or twenty dollars. Well, I'm gonna go put my product for twenty dollars if I know that the units they can, you know, they can sell the same amount of capacity of units, right? So, one million unit here, one million here, ten dollars here, twenty dollars here. Which one? Do you, which you, which one do you think that manufacturers are gonna pick every time? They're gonna try to get the most for their money. Now you flip that over, and say, okay, you as a consumer, I'm gonna get that same widget, but I, instead of me paying a hundred dollars. I'm going to pay $70. So if I know that those two widgets are exactly the same quality, the only difference is how they deliver it, which one do you think that that consumer is going to be picking every single time? The $70 every single time. Now, what I just told you there was the manufacturer just made double his price and the, the consumer just got something for 30% discount. That's an autonomous, that's, a, that, that's what I'm talking about, the automated yeah. system. Although I think in that scenario, my artificial intelligence would negotiate with their artificial intelligence auto automatically come to that right. price. Right, right. So, so again, so the blockchain is part, it's again, it's just a subset of automation, right? So yeah, blockchain makes, makes it where you have all these uh, decentralized app where your transaction, and it's completely, there's no central authority that makes that decision. It's done by code. And your enemies will actually have the same data as you do because you're trying to make sure that that every transaction is valid, that the data, right? You, you, it's a self-checking model. And then now with AI on top of this, so then of course, like blockchain is like, okay, well, we can we can probably account for 20% of all the different use cases that can exist. But what about the 80%? The ones that will happen one, one every, once every a million scenarios. Well, AI can go in there and make kind of those decisions. So smart contracts, and then you get these like, artificial intelligence powered smart contracts where the AI component comes in there. So the point is, is that you, you can create a totally disintermediated marketplace, totally sustained by itself, totally supported by programmers who to decide to download the code, Bitcoin, and there is no Jeff Bezos in there. So this is where we see like, is that world gonna happen? Yes, I mean, I just, you talk to anybody like futurists, that's gonna definitely happen within a thousand years. So can it happen sooner? We think it could happen in the next 50 years, for sure. I agree, especially with the exponential nature of these technologies. I don't, I don't think anyone, well, I don't want to say anyone, I don't think the broader population has really understood what exponential means, like what exponential means in these yeah. contexts and how quickly this is all mm -hmm. going to happen. I mean, so I'm, I'm 25. I, I'm in a position where I grew up in the 90s without the internet, but like most of my kind of adult life yeah. and working life has been... And, mm -hmm. and all this stuff is just changing so quickly. Yeah. Every, every year, yeah. it seems. Like day, day by day, you wake up and nothing was different than yesterday. Right. But you wake up in six months and it's like... Think, think about like the automation that's going to happen, transportation to medicine. I mean, everything, right? Uh -huh. Anything that has a human being 
your like FedEx guy is not going to be a FedEx guy anymore. It's going to be a robot that goes there and drops it off completely like there's no human. And that's where the economy of scale works, right? That's where you can now take what was essentially an 80% markup in a supply chain. Now you can squeeze that and compact it to like literally single digits. I mean, think about that, right? No, I know, I know. Like it's, now it's, it's just, it's, it's like a manufacturer can now direct, go directly to you and you can deal with the manufacturer directly. You don't have to, you don't have to deal with an Amazon and, and line Jeff Bezos pockets to make, to be, to be the trillionaire. Imagine like taking that trillion trillion dollars and now spreading it across to everybody else who's, who's supporting that that ecosystem. Mm-hmm. And all you have to do is just download the code. Think about that, right? Because right now they're like they're servers on the cloud, but we have computers in our phones. That <laughs> and and here's the funny part, right? Like how many how many apps do you have on your phone, right? You, you probably got like hundreds, right? You probably, probably like don't 20. remember probably a good twenty percent of those. Those apps. Oh, like, I know. I probably have like five scooter apps right now. Right, right. You had no idea that was there. Now imagine, because this is the whole point, right? Like, you know, when, when someone says, hey, you have to turn off Bitcoin, there's going to be programs out there that are, that are running and people are going to forget that they're running that program. Imagine now that those like uh, decentralized apps are now on your phone, supported by millions and billions of people. That's like, okay, guys, shut this down. Okay, you're going to have to shut everybody's phone down, right? Yeah. Uh, of those apps that people forgot that they even have on their phone. So just just imagine that, right? It's like, it's literally like the herpes of the internet, like the blockchain. You, you, like these distributed apps, because if you have one running, then it's running. It's up. <laughs> you got one of this app running, it's up. As long as it can, you know, support whatever transaction. And so the point is, is that it's a new paradigm, right? And so this is when people say like the internet... This is kind of like looking the, at the birth of the internet, but this is the second version of the internet. It's because now can we have a completely decentralized internet and what would that world look like? And everything and anything that you touch, like even all those apps that you worked, that you use in the morning, can they possibly be de- decentralized? Not, not everything could be de- decentralized, it needs to be de- decentralized, but anything where it's like connecting networks and things like that, again, the original intention of the internet. As long as Elon's not trying to put a chip in my brain, that's, <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm fine with that. Right. But, uh, th- this has been really good. I want to. I want to make sure before we sign off. I want to touch on the DC ecosystem just for a little bit. Yeah. So I mean, you you've been a, a leader in the ecosystem here and hosted the startup grind chapter. Yeah. Why is in DC? Why is in DC a top five ecosystem in the world? Yeah. So so I always use this example, and this is something that I always ask all my speakers about, like why DC. What's interesting is that when you get our audience, and we have a Q&A, we have a Q&A section, so our audience will ask our, our speaker this question every single time. And this is very more indicative of just sort of the DC tech mindset. The question they always ask is, hey, you know, what's culture? Like, how do, you, how do you create a culture, a great culture in your company? And I feel like that question is really deeply seated into something that's very unique to DC because I feel like the DC community, they're looking for something more that it's like, why can't we become a top startup community that New York and Silicon Valley has, right? Or Seattle. And it's really this, this mentality of, of culture of the failure culture, right? So if you ever go to Europe and you go to Paris, right? I always say Paris and DC are very similar. The top job in Paris is like a government job, right? Like 
cabinet level, you're working for the government, nice pension, pretty nice, very risk averse, a lawyer, <laughs> culture. If you look at DC, like I always call the, um, they have this thing called the four L's. So you got the law, lawyers, lobbyists, lawmakers, and liars. And so if you ever think about the DC area, everybody doesn't trust each other. If you try to put that sort of mindset and now try to create, and that's, that's sort of the foundation for an entrepreneur community, that's like probably the worst thing that you can put entrepreneurs in, like that culture. Yeah, that makes a Where lot of sense. Where it's like, and... I used to be a former lawyer, a lobbyist. Now sign an NDA so that I can tell you my idea. It's like, what? <laughs> yeah. And then, and even this also, I had a prominent VC as a guest and he had said this. He said, if you go to Silicon Valley, the entrepreneurs are extremely collaborative. But if you talk to the VCs in Silicon Valley, they don't want to talk to each other, which makes sense because they're trying to get deals and they don't want to share their deals. If you go to DC, exactly the opposite. Entrepreneurs are not collaborative, but the VCs are extremely collaborative. <laughs> so the point is, I think it's the culture of, and that mindset of failure, trusting, collaboration, so that's what we need to sort of turn around this, this area. Yeah, so I, I agree. I agree. I think what I've seen from entrepreneurship really all around the world and what I think DC, the problem is in DC, there's two types of ways to build a company. One is by network leveraging, using who you know to get deals yeah. versus creating, which is creating something that wouldn't have existed without you right. and building wealth for everyone. And I think DC has too much of the former, yeah. too many people that have leveraged the position that they were in to get yeah. funding, to get a project on, uh, I won't name any names, but right. you know, I think that's, I think that's one of the biggest problems and, we have. And the, and the other thing too, is like, you have to, you know, one of the also indicators of a thriving starter community is seeing who the gatekeepers are. So if you ever go to New York or Silicon Valley, all the gatekeepers are entrepreneurs. The guys who've, who, who've done, who went to, who's been through the grind, who's taken a company public, who's, who's right, who's raised money. And those are the, the guys you want to, folks you want to learn from. Here in D.C., those, gatekeep, those gatekeepers are like economic development folks, lawyers, right? It's like, what? <laughs> I have to go through a lawyer to get to an entrepreneur? This doesn't make any sense. Right. There's many theories about why D.C. could be uh, a top, top five, but I think ultimately it's the whole cultural mindset. And we need to have like things like an Amazon moving here, another AOL being created, like you and I building those those communities and creating the the new AOLs of the world. Or I'm working on it, Facebook. man. I'm working yeah, on it. <laughs> that's what we need. Like yeah. we need we need to have a, a a community that's that's driven by entrepreneurs who get it and who are willing to pay it for it and yeah. and also grow it and also put money back into the into the ecosystem here. Right. I completely agree. Well, Brian Park, Spark Labs, Startup Grind. One little plug, if you are a company that's in cyber security or in blockchain, please go to our website, www.sparklabscyber.com. We'll be opening up applications soon. And we'd love to, and if you are a government employee who's bored at his job and you work, you work at a pretty cool project, but you want to, you, know, you, you have entrepreneur aspirations, please apply because I'd love to take you out for, uh, for coffee. Thanks for listening. Be sure to add Andrew on Snapchat at andberk, that's A-N-D-B-E-R-K, to see firsthand a day in the life of an entrepreneur in cities all around the world.